so profound that it left some saying, surely this is a man of God. This lengthy sermon is known as the Sermon on the Mount and has become a key teaching on all things of the Christian lifestyle. After preaching the words, which we now identify as the Beatitudes that we read this morning, he calls out the people. He basically says that those who would call him Lord are indeed different. They've been set apart. And so he first identifies his followers as salt. And then he goes on to describe them as light, saying, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In a world of darkness, the people of Christ, the body of Christ, they are to be the light of Christ, shining into that darkness. We, we are to be people both in attitude and actions, not merely distinctive or different, but in direct contrast. Just as light and darkness are direct opposites of one another, the follower of Christ and the follower of the world are direct opposites of one another. And what is it that indeed makes them different? As we've gone through Colossians 3, Colossians 3 has laid out the agenda for us. As we talked about what it means to be a child of God, moving forward through the text, the Lord through the hand of Paul, through the writings of Paul, he has laid out these distinctive characteristics. As we re-enter our text this morning then, we find placed before us another one of those distinctives, another one of those characteristics that makes us different from the world, that of peace. But peace that is different from what we normally think about when we talk about peace. And so as you've turned to your Bibles, I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, The Condition of God's Children. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3 going back to where we began so many weeks ago in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You may be seated.
It was Henry Drummond who had said, Christ's life outwardly was one of the most troubled lives that was ever lived. Tempest and tumult, tumult and tempest, the waves breaking over it all the time. But the inner life was a sea of glass. The great calm was always there. For centuries, the Jews had awaited for Christ. Though they did not know him by that name, they awaited the one who would inaugurate God's kingdom, specifically his kingdom of peace. But his physical life was anything but peaceful. Outwardly, this was one of constant turbulence and constant turmoil. Wherever Jesus went, controversy seemed to follow. Controversy seemed to surround him. And there were always those who were disturbed by what he had said. So much so that they took the time to challenge him. They confronted him. And eventually, they would crucify him. Though his physical life may have been one that seems opposite of peace, the reality is that his testimony was one of peace. We see that exemplified in three ways. First, we know that he had peace with God the Father. We see this through his relationship with God the Father. Being at peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ would withdraw from the crowds regularly, ensuring that he had time and regular communication with God. Second, Jesus was at peace with people. It may seem that this constant calamity around Jesus was always taking place, but he never initiated it. He was controversial because he was truthful. And as truth confronts the heart, some indeed will respond harshly and severely because none of us like to have our hearts challenged. But Jesus never intentionally sought division. It was a simple response to his message that he preached. And to that response, we never see Christ picking up the sword. Even towards those who opposed him, Jesus always maintained a peaceful demeanor. Finally, we see that Jesus was at peace in his circumstances regardless of what was taking place in the world. His life never seemed to be in disorder or distress. This is, of course, most notably demonstrated by his willing submission to the Lord's plan. Though it would be excruciating, Jesus remains contented and at peace because he was at peace with God. And so he willfully submitted to the cross. This morning, Colossians 3.15 brings that peace into focus in the life of a believer. Paul not only issues a call to peace in Colossians 3.15, but he specifies it by placing attention directly on the peace of Christ. And so as we look at our text, I want you to note first the conjunction of priority. The conjunction of priority. Notice how the text begins in verse 15. And. One word, and. That's it. Perhaps this seems silly to think about, because that's just a three-letter word. And it is used so extensively in our own language that we don't even need to think about its usage. 
It's part of our subconscious nature. That word, every time it is used, is interpreted for us automatically. And so we don't need to pause on what the word and means. We simply go over it, continuing on in the text. But that's the point. Sometimes we need to hesitate on that word. That word and. It is the fifth most used word in the English language. Only the words the, be, to, and of are more frequently used. If we misunderstand this word, then, we risk misunderstanding a majority of the content in our lives. If we misinterpret this word, whether it is written or whether it is spoken, we risk misinterpreting the majority of the communication in our lives, including scripture. As an example, go back to Colossians 3, verse 12. I hope, remembering that when we spent three weeks on that first part of verse 12, I I said, this is a long time to spend on this text, but it will be crucial to our understanding of the application that follows. I hope by now we're starting to realize that after coming back to that same text week after week, sermon after sermon. But now I want to look at it and use it just as an example. It says, as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved. Holy and beloved. They come together here to indicate that those chosen by God are both. Together, these two words offer a description of what it means to be chosen. But what happens if you change or misinterpret or remove the word and in that text? The chosen ones are not holy beloved. They're not beloved holy. And they're certainly not holy or beloved. The chosen ones are holy and beloved. And so when God chooses somebody, they are made both. This word and is a conjunction. That's the purpose it serves. It joins together two independent concepts and it makes them codependent upon one another. So we must ask then, what is it that this word and is joining together in our text? When we look at verse 15, what is the purpose of that word and? And that word and is crucial because it's bringing together verses 12 through 14 and uniting them with what we see in verse 15. Verse 15 is the output of verses 12 through 14. That is to say that a lifestyle of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience is a lifestyle of peace. The consequences of bearing with one another and forgiving one another in verse 13 is the peace of Christ. And the evidence of love in verse 14 is a testimony of peace. That one word, and, sets loose all that is in the previous verses through the peace of Christ. It takes everything that was said, and by the peace of Christ, allows us to accomplish it. Paul's words do not offer a choice. It's not put on humility, or forgive, or put on love, or be at peace. 
the word is and. It's all of these. There's no option given here. It is to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and love, and let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. As you allow that to settle on you, perhaps beginning to question our own ability, thoughts like, I could never do that, that's too much. I want you to look further into our text, though, and now move beyond that word and. I want you to note, second, the Christ of tranquility. The Christ of tranquility. Our text reads, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To understand the peace of Christ, we must first understand the Christ of peace. John 14, 27. Just after Christ has given his assurance that though he will be departing his disciples very soon, Jesus says they should be encouraged by his departure. Because with that will come the arrival of his helper, the Holy Spirit. And then he utters these words in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. How can he do that? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What gives Christ the authority to impart his peace to anyone? Because that's who he is. We read it this morning in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to, a, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Second Thessalonians 3.16 goes further, affirming the same thing. Now may the Lord of Peace himself give you peace at all times and every way. That's Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians when he closes out that second letter. He is the Lord of peace. He is the sovereign over peace. Having all authority over peace, he distributes it, imparting it to others, and he does so freely. In the Gospel of John, Jesus imparts his peace to his disciples. And it's this that motivates the prayer we just read of Paul for the Thessalonians. And now here in our text in Colossians, he writes of Christ's peace ruling over the church. This is an incredible aspect of our text. Let the peace of Christ rule. He doesn't write the peace of the world, the peace of the pastor, or the peace of the church. No, he writes the peace of Christ. If you serve at the community house and you enter their kitchen, over their stove is a big sign that says shalom. What does shalom mean? It's a Hebrew root, Hebrew word, meaning peace. Today it is a typical greeting, particularly among the Jews, but not the Jews alone. It's been adopted by non-Jews as well in which they just greet one another 
If you walk around Israel, it is commonplace for two strangers to even other words, shalom to one another, even casually. And how they mean that is simply peace or general well-being to you. Shalom, though, is more than general peace and well-being. The word was meant to convey God's peace. (coughs) And that's the peace Paul speaks of here. The peace of Christ. And Christ is God, so the peace of God. The peace that is to rule the hearts of the Colossian believers, then, is the peace of God. This is a divine peace. Available exclusively, only through Jesus Christ, through the divine Son of God. It's not peace found in our families. It's not peace found in our friends. This is a heavenly peace that comes from Christ alone. Consider what Christ means. We use it as a name for Jesus. But what was it originally? It was a title. It means Messiah. It wasn't Jesus Christ. It was Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is a long-awaited Messiah promised by God generations ago. And why was he so long-awaited? Because the expectation was that he would bring the peace of God. That's exactly what he did. That was certainly not in the form that the people anticipated. While they were expecting political peace, Jesus the Christ brought forth the divine peace of God. And how did he do that? By bringing about peace with God. The peace of Christ was realized through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It brings to fulfillment the peace with God. This peace is critical to the Christian believer because it influences the attitudes and actions of all those who would trust in that peace. It is crucial because it imparts both a new character and a new condition for the Christ follower. This is because the peace of God introduces us to peace with our circumstances just as we saw with Christ submitting himself to the Father's will of death on the cross. The result is great confidence in the Lord's work in our lives, not just to rescue us from an eternal damnation from his presence, but to ready us for an eternal habitation in his presence. The peace of Christ ruling in our lives says, I'm okay with what is taking place, regardless of how difficult the circumstances are, because I know that the Lord has purposed it as part of his plan and part of my preparation for my future residing with him there. William Hendrickson reminds us, this peace is a condition of rest and contentment in the heart of those who know that their Redeemer lives. It is a conviction that the sins of the past have been forgiven, that the present is being overruled for good, and that the future cannot bring separation between Christ 
and his own. After that weighty end that we just talked about, that weighty end that, that brings all these things together in our lives and that we should be peaceful, this right here should bring us hope. Because it's not us bringing about peace. This is the peace of Christ. It's not my peace. It's not your peace. It's his peace. While we may allow it to rule in our lives, it's not up to us to bring it into existence. The peace of Christ is already there. We don't have to search for it. We don't have to take all our efforts to make it even happen. It's already there. It's a matter of allowing peace to rule in our lives. And when it is introduced in our lives, this Christ of peace offers hope. To those who are afflicted, the peace of God brings comfort. To those who are angered, the peace of God brings contentment. And to those who are anxious, the peace of God brings calmness. It's worded this way in Philippians 4, 7. And let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of Christ guards hearts and minds. This is the blessing of a Christian experience. That a life proliferated by chaos may find the peace of Christ. That in the circumstances of calamity, the Christian, the true follower of Christ will encounter tranquility because the peace of Christ comes from the Christ of peace. I want you to note third, the call of identity. The call of identity. I want to go to the last phrase in our text in verse 15. The final phrase, to which indeed you were called in one body. The peace of Christ moves from individual application to a collective implication now. Peace may rule in every single individual's heart, my heart, your heart. And though we may benefit from it individually, from the contentment and the comfort, we see also that there is a collective element to it. There is a group aspect to peace, and it impacts the church. We see that when we take a look at the circumstances surrounding the Church of Colossae. One commentator notes, this text argues against false humility of those who claim higher spiritual status through aesthetic and cultural practices, and those who disrupt unity. We've already established that's what was taking place. From chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, There were those who insisted on their practices of aestheticism and culture. And then they would say that this led to a deeper relationship with God. Do you see the problems with that? Specifically in regards to peace. First, it creates a false gospel. Preaching that there are other means by which to obtain the peace of God. Those aesthetic practices. Second, it creates automatic division because they're essentially suggesting that someone within the church 
was better than somebody else because they did a practice that somebody else didn't. And so it divides. The result is that these false teachers, by insisting on their own way, denied the peace of Christ, both individually by teaching another gospel, but also while disrupting the peace of Christ within the body by creating different levels of believers. As we've been discussing false religions on Wednesday night and the different cults, one of the trends that has become apparent in every week that we've talked about in each falsehood has been the proclamation of one way in order to appeal to the people. And yet they cultivate the opposite in practice. As an example, some will exclaim or proclaim the exaltation of women publicly, but in practice of their theology, in practice of what they're teaching, they actually treat women the opposite. Last week, last Wednesday, we saw this in the call for peace. That while in practice, the religion we were discussing cultivated division and even physical fighting, despite saying they were a peaceful religion. This is hypocrisy, and that's what we see in our text. While the false teachers were preaching the peace of Christ, they were denying the power of the peace of Christ. The text here in Colossians goes against that teaching. It calls out the heretics and their divisive teaching. Paul, throughout his letter, has highlighted the oneness of the body of Christ. We see that in chapter 1, verses 18 and 24, and chapter 2, verse 19. As one body, then, the body cannot be divided within itself. How would it look if the body of Christ was in conflict with itself? In the medical world, there is a, a disease, a condition known as Evans syndrome. It is a disease in which the immune system destroys the body's red and white blood cells and, and sometimes even the platelets. While possibly treatable, generally the prognosis is eventual death. It's quite literally a body divided upon itself. This is what happens within the body of Christ without the peace of Christ. The body of Christ consumes itself. And that will eventually prove fatal. Such behavior rejects the power and practices of the peace of Christ. Notice what Paul says here, too. You were called for this. That's my version. That is to say that when God chose his people to be part of the body in verse 12, he called them, you and I, to... Let the peace of Christ rule over us within the body. He reiterates this calling to the Ephesians, saying, I urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace with God is indistinguishable from peace with others. We see this in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians. 
Everett Harrison would say it this way, only souls at peace with God can be at peace with men. That is to say that peace with others occurs only when we are at peace with God. If we are not at peace with one another, including within our own friends and our own family, perhaps we need to ask, am I at peace with God? When there's peace with him, it becomes impossible to be at conflict with others. Because how could we maintain enmity with anyone else in light of God's willingness to extend conciliation to any one of us? Such peace is seen as through the disposition of the church. It's not the absence of discord or differences, but it's the acceptance of those differences and a humble willingness to endeavor towards the will of God. Bruce Barton stipulates to live in peace would not mean that suddenly all differences of opinion would be eliminated, but it would require that they work together despite their differences. The closer the body is to the peace of Christ, the closer the body is to peace with one another. I want you to note finally the condition of humanity the condition of humanity. Peace is a long, often sought-after virtue of many people. Day by day, hour by hour. This is what most people want. They want peace to rule in their lives. They want to avoid conflicts with others. They want to avoid conflicts in their own hearts. They want peace. Isn't that what we're always seeking? We'll avoid conflict with one another, avoid confronting even sin to supposedly keep peace. We even won't confront ourselves to keep the peace. We don't want to be at a turmoil in our circumstances. We don't want to be anxious. Because Christ, though, is the Prince of Peace. Genuine peace is not apprehended until Christ is comprehended. Ultimately, the condition of our life for the Lord will follow the condition of our heart before the Lord. And so when Christ rules our lives, then his peace will rule our lives. This is the condition, or should be the condition of humanity, specifically in the church. We've already established the link between those two things in the previous points. But this is now what we see in practice in our text having submitted to Christ and having received the peace of Christ at salvation. It is now that peace of Christ that is to act as a regulator over one's life. The word here, if you look at the text, the word rule, it's interesting because it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It was, however, used in many other writings of the same day, of the same era, And it was always used to convey the idea of acting as an umpire. The closest we get to finding this word in the New Testament is actually one chapter earlier, in Colossians 2.18. And there it's a compound form of the word. It says, Let no one disqualify you, 
Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And the text goes on. Let no one disqualify you. That's the compound word. That is to say, let no one act as a judge. Let no one act as an umpire against you by delighting in these false practices that the false teachers were teaching about. We just discussed those practices and how they were being used as an antithesis to the peace of Christ. Now, in the same way that the Colossians were not to let those false teachers act as umpires in their lives, they're now to act or allow the peace of Christ to act as the final arbitrator. Specifically, it should be the umpire of their hearts, it says in our text. Notice that Paul does not write, let peace be in your hearts. It's not a characteristic that simply resides there. He says instead, let it rule your heart. As in, let it have oversight in your heart. The intensity that goes a bit further when we recognize that phrase, in your heart, is actually a Hebraic expression, an expression of Hebrew It's an expression from the Hebrew language to convey not just within the heart, but it was meant to be one's entire emotion and will and volition. It was meant to be one's entire being. And so as a result, the indication here in our text is not to just let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts or rule over our hearts. It's let the peace of Christ rule and have authority over one's entire life. Peace is to hold sway over our entire being. Peace here is not a subjective guide for decision-making. It's meant to be an objective truth that preserves the unity within the body of Christ. I recognize this is a secular example, and so it doesn't kind of have the same weight But several weeks ago, we took the kids to a Seattle Sounders game, a soccer match. And during the game, there was a penalty that wasn't called. And the fans got pretty angry. I was upset. I figured me being in my high-up seat way from the field could see much better than that ref that was right there. So we went home and we watched the game on TV. And I was right. Indeed, it was a penalty, and even the announcers were saying... This was a penalty. There's no way that shouldn't have been called. So the coach, Brian Schmetzer, definitely in the moment didn't respond, but then he had his press conference afterwards. And basically, he just let it go. In fact, I don't know that I've ever seen him criticize the refs. Even yesterday, when they sent one of his players off the field, the true ref the one acting as an umpire, actually sowed division by not making the right call. But the coach sowed peace by simply just overlooking it and recognizing what was it going to do in that moment. It was a small thing that wasn't going to change anything at that time. There was nothing they could do. This is the peace of Christ acting as an umpire. Peace, then, is not meant to compromise on doctrine, 
but it is a concession for the sake of unity, even if a wrong has taken place. And hopefully takes us back to what we already talked about in verse 13, where we see forbearing with one another and see forgiveness. It is peace that acts as the final arbiter. It is, it is this peace that is modeled by unity from our previous verse last week. It is peace that is the outcome of love in verse 14. And it is peace acting as an umpire that leads to the forbearance and the forgiveness of sins with one another in verse 13. And the condition of a believer's life is a character of peace. Already we've seen that outcome displayed in three ways. First, the condition of peace impacts our circumstances. We respond in contentment and confidence when we have the peace of Christ, trusting he's at work through his spirit. Second, it is a peace of Christ that determines our condition with God. Those who have peace with Christ have peace with God. And the last way we've already seen this is that peace with God brings about peace with others. When the peace of Christ plays out in our lives, it plays out with others. It is the peace of Christ that rules over our circumstances, over our relationship with God, and over our relationship with others, influencing every aspect of our lives. Not because peace removes adversity, but because it causes perseverance during adversity. There was a point in our history known as the Pax Romana, Roman peace. It is said to have lasted 200 years, and generally it is dated from 27 BC to AD 180. And the reason it is considered a peaceful time is because during that time there was less conflict on a large scale. There was an increase in power and an expansion of rule, at least for the Roman Empire, hence Roman peace. The population grew to its largest at that time, and there was even greater wealth and status among the people. But was it really peaceful? There were no less than 39 revolts and riots, manifestations of internal turmoil and civil wars. There were roughly 22 wars, including a series of conflicts known as the Roman Parthian Wars that spanned from 54 BC to 217 AD. They spanned that entire 200 years. What happened in biblical history at this time? This was the time when Herod killed children under, under four years of age. It was an era when Rome overtook Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It became a time of increased persecution. We only need to look at the book of Acts to see that. So was it really a peaceful time? Perhaps it was the most peaceful time in history, and yet the most peaceful time in history still lacked peace. At best, it was a false peace, giving the appearance of being more peaceful than any other era, at least. It was a false peace. Genuine peace 
is only found in the genuine Prince of Peace, the very man they put to death during that same time frame. But for the sake of argument, let's say indeed that this was a time of peace, that that 200 years was the most peaceful it's ever been. What happened? It eventually ended. It didn't last. Of course it's going to go away because only peace in Christ is permanent. Peace that is founded in a man or humanity that is mutable or changeable is always going to change itself too. Eventually it will likely cease. Only when peace is found in the one who is immutable and the one who never changes will peace also be unchangeable. We seek peace. We desire that. And if our lives lack peace, whether externally or internally, we need to only look at the Prince of Peace. Because the eternal peace is only found in the eternal Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we indeed are grateful. You are the God of peace, and you've given us your Son, the Prince of Peace. And you've done so that we may be at peace, Lord. You've done so through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, that through him dying on the cross and paying the penalty of our sins, that all we need to do is believe upon him and believe on that act and believe that it is sufficient to cover the sins, Lord, that we too can be at peace. First, we're at peace with you. And when we're at peace with you, we can be at peace in our lives, Lord, trusting that indeed your will and your work is taking place. So, Lord, I do pray Help us to acknowledge and accept that peace, Lord. May we find all contentment in you. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.